Edwin Frondozo on the Business Leadership Podcast every week for a unique program featuring insights and actionable items from the world's most successful business leaders. Hear firsthand the exclusive interviews and personal journeys on how today's transformational leaders made it to the top. Hey everybody, it's me, it's Edwin, and thank you for joining me on the Business Leadership Podcast. This is episode 35, and my guest today is David Penny. With more than 20 years of experience at the technological forefront of innovative software businesses, David has held leading positions at Algorithmics, Electronics Workbench, Cirix, and IBM Risk Analytics. David's currently working at Ethica, a Toronto-based fintech in the credit card fraud space. And at Ethica, he oversees all technology, including software development, DevOps, IT operations, enterprise data systems, security, and corporate IT. It was fascinating hearing Dave's stories about leading technical teams from small organizations to large enterprise. What I really enjoyed was learning about Miyamoto Musashi, an ancient Japanese swordsman, and what he took from his writings. Before getting started, I'd like to thank my media partners, IT World Canada, Startup Canada for the support of the podcast. Enjoy the show. Hi, Dave. Welcome to the Business Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Edwin. I'm glad to be here, Ka. Tell us about Ethica. I mean, your current role now, and may- maybe if you'd want to share what uh, what some of your goals or your current mission is now, uh, trying to lead this company. Yeah, absolutely. So so at Ethica, I'm the CTO there. Uh, so I manage all of the technology it has cloud-based software, so there's a team of software developers, of course, and QA and DevOps, and that rolls into production operations, and uh, we have data science teams on the side that I manage as well, corporate IT, I manage a big security team I manage as well. So that's that's kind of the scope of stuff I'm, I'm in, in charge of, all the kind of technology-heavy aspects of the company. Ethica, it's it's a great company. First of all, it's a great domain it's in, which is trying to help uh, credit card fraud, trying to help eliminate credit card fraud. Uh, we've built a big a network, essentially a, a data network that exists between credit card issuing banks and the merchants that take payments. And those two don't really talk to each other, except via something, via Ethica, actually. Uh, because in between those two things are, you know, card networks and then merchant acquiring banks and then payment processors and then finally merchants on the other end. So they don't really talk except on a very thin little communication wire, which is just authorizing a credit card transaction sure. and then settling it later. Uh, and so we have a much richer data pipe and a much more real time data pipe. So as soon as, um, as soon as a bank verifies that there's a fraud on your credit card, you know, they either their fraud systems detected or, or you detect it and you phone in and you say, hey, what's this? Uh, as soon as that's verified as fraud, uh, we find out about it right away in real time, ideally. And then we send it to the appropriate merchant in real time so they can match it up to a transaction and say, oh, well, that was for a $4,000 big screen TV. It's still on the docks. We're going to stop shipment of that and we're going to issue the refund back to the cardholder mm-hmm. and everybody's happy you've avoided what's called the chargeback process which is what happens otherwise chargeback process is a very uh, ex- it's an expensive process and, and it would have taken that merchant four to six weeks potentially to even know that that transaction was fraudulent 
And so we grease the wheels. We tell them right away or as soon as possible that it's fraudulent, as soon as it's, it's confirmed that it is. And uh, we're able to therefore avoid the fraud loss, kind of stymie the fraudster and avoid all the chargeback costs for both the issuing bank uh, and for the, the, the merchants involved as well. For me, doing this podcast, talking to amazing business leaders, it always fascinates me to know, you know, the journey that you got to where you came. And you did mention a couple of key points when, when, you know, there were a lot of sales, but I'd love to share, if you can, some of the key turning points or, or decisions that you had to go through to make that change to bring you up to the next level of, of a leader and, and, and how you reflect back to them now. Yeah. Uh, probably my most interesting experience was uh, at Algorithmics, uh, the, the first time, essentially. Uh, so that was, I, I was hired on there as a manager of a small team reporting into the CEO, the founder CEO. And, uh, I just kind of, I was a coder as well. So I just got to work coding. I just blended in with the team and started doing coding and understanding. And it was uh, very chaotic back then. We were putting out releases just constantly with very little QA on any of them. And so, you know, just gradually starting to establish some best practices in terms of uh, of the day in terms of well let's not ship the software every five minutes let's let's set a date two weeks in the future and aim to that date and do a little bit of testing Mm -hmm. before we put it out on that date and then let's let's figure out you know what we can take on in the next two weeks and the next four weeks and the next six weeks uh, try to uh, estimate you know how much coding capacity have we got really available to us and how much coding requirement do we really have available to us? And let's balance those two things out like a financial balance sheet and, uh, and go to the business and say, Hey, th- this is, this is what we can accomplish. So very, and very straightforward and allow the business to get that kind of visibility, which they usually don't have. Even today, it, it's rare for businesses to have a really good visibility into what the team is working on and to understand that there, there are trade-offs to be made. You can, if you want some new thing, that's fantastic. Let's let's do that. Let's pivot quickly. But you got to pull out something as well. I always say it's never a decision if you decide to do something. It's only a decision when you decide not to do something. That's the tough decision. It's easy to say, no, let's just do more and more and more and more. And then you wind up, the thing that gets sacrificed is a little bit unpredictable because something's going to fail. And uh, so instead... No, let's at any given time, let's know what we're doing within what time frame. And if you want to change that, encourage that, that's fantastic. But let's make the now the tough decision of what goes out of the plan as well. So, yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like, and, and you know, I'm reflecting back to the decisions I, I make with my business partner, who's the CTO. And I have a billion ideas always. And I yeah. think he tries to communicate that to me in terms of, yeah, Edwin, I could do, we could move anywhere, which way you want to do, but... What are we leaving behind? Yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned that. And, and did you, you know, going through that process, was it something that you had to learn how to communicate with the other stakeholders as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it was, it, it was a very pivotal moment when I was um, new, relatively new in that job. And I was talking to the CEO and Ron was like you. He had millions of ideas. Fantastic. They were all fantastic ideas. And, uh, and the rest of the team was extremely frustrated because they, he seemed to forget that the fantastic ideas from a week ago, they were still really working on hard. <laughs> now he had a whole bunch of new fantastic ideas as well. And he just wanted them to do them all and all and all. So there was a lot of frustration there. 
And uh, so I came in and, and he said, uh, David, I, I want you to do this. And I said, yes, sir. Absolutely. We'll get that done. Yeah, I'm a good manager. I have a new, new manager, newly minted manager. I figured we could jam it in somehow. And then he did it again and again and again. And, and I kind of, at one point I just kind of lost. I said, Ron, we, we can't possibly, you're already, we're already full up. We're already like going to be late. We can't put one more thing in. <laughs> and he looked at me strange. I said, well, of course we can, David. We're just, what are we working on? And let's just pick something to take out. And I said, oh. And so what are we working on? And I saw it started, but I didn't actually know. I like right off the top of my head, sure. I didn't know. So I said, let me get back to you. So I went down to my desk and I made a list that, okay, this is everything we're working on. I said, okay, well, that's the list. Well, that's useless by itself. Um, what's the estimate? How long will, how many dedicated hours of coding effort? And then we'll assume a ratio for testing mixed in there as well. Will all of those things take? I said, okay, well, now we're getting somewhere. But it still doesn't tell me when it's going to deliver. So now let me go through all the coders and we'll estimate how many time hours each day these guys have to actually code mm -hmm. because some of them are team leaders and some of them are architects and they're not doing and they're going to meetings and they're going to customer presentations and so you kind of figure out how many hours they have available and said okay now we're getting somewhere i have the requirement i have the capacity i was horrified to find out that what was previously in my mind that i thought would take a month is going to take six months sure. if, if my <laughs> math is working out and it proved that the math was working out so I went back the next day. So I did this all in one day and developed a spreadsheet and showed it. And I showed it to Ron and I said, look, here's the list, Ron. I don't see how we can possibly do this new thing you're talking about because I've estimated this is. And he looked down the list. He said, oh, you can take this out. And it was a big ticket item. I said, we, we can't take that out, Ron. You, we promised that to Banamex, one of the biggest banks in Mexico. Uh, you promised it personally to them. It's, uh, my understanding is that is absolutely needs to go in there. They're an anchor client of ours. Oh, no, 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 David. I'll, I'll have lunch with the chairman and we'll tell him it'll come later. It'll, it'll be fine. Take it out. Put this other thing in. And I was just impressed because it was this guy who the whole dev team thought was completely unreasonable because he kept jamming stuff on them. Mm -hmm. Just didn't have the information he needed to make the decisions. And once we gave him the info, then he could start making good business decisions. And it was, wow, it's not him who was unreasonable. It was us who wasn't providing him with his business level, uh, you know, uh, data that he could make a decision based on. And so that was kind of a turning point. And I, I, I've used a similar approach everywhere I've gone. And it's kind of been the secret to, to my success. And I've even at, at IBM, when I had 400 people under me I and 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 dozens and dozens of different software um, this was a unifying concept they all use different methodologies various agile and this and that and all over the place everyone was using something different but I I asked for a very simple roll-up of their information in terms of capacity and requirement and put it on a dashboard for mm -hmm. me and I could see you know where we were in trouble where we weren't in trouble what we could commit to what we couldn't commit to within what time frame so it really scaled up well even to that giant level as well oh that's great yeah. that's great and, and you just you just touched upon it, and i want to move on to it you were able to bring that the knowledge to different organizations and obviously your team changed um your responsibility probably change as well but i mean being a, a cto type level it's just a different project maybe in your eyes so 
I'd love to know how, when you did do these changes, how you adjusted and, and you continually grew as, as the effective yeah. business leader you are. Well, what was interesting at, at Algorithmic, so I was in charge of this core product called Riskwatch. And then uh, I was a pretty junior guy. I didn't recognize it at the time. I thought I was hot shit, I guess. <laughs> and uh, Ron, with, with uh, having no, you know, no, no issue with me whatsoever, brought in this other guy, Steve Rosenberg, to manage me. Because Steve was more a VP type, an older type, more experienced, more mature. I didn't quite understand it at the time. I thought I was doing a great job. and but So I was a little bit defensive about, you know, and, but as soon as I met Steve, as soon as the first interview, I said, oh, I can learn a lot from this guy. Right. So fantastic. So he came in and he taught me how to go to the next level. And what he did was, first of all, he delegated everything I was doing so well to me completely. said, that's yours. You work on that. You do that. That's yours. And then I kind of scratched my head. Well, if that's mine, what, what, are, what are you doing? Right. <laughs> and what he did was he elevated a level. He started thinking strategically. Uh, he started thinking innovatively. He started creating new product lines and launching them parallel to my own, the mm -hmm. one I was working on. And uh, so without ever instructing me on this, he taught me what it was like to elevate up, to, to delegate successfully and to elevate up a level. And that's what I try to do now. I try to really figure out areas of responsibility for people, uh, delegate to them, let them do their jobs. And with my time, then I can, I can elevate up a level and I can think more strategically. Uh, you know, in any, in any given company, there's certain things that, uh, that strategic initiatives that you need to drive forward. And they risk getting lost in the noise of the, all the day-to-day -day activity that needs to happen to keep customers happy to get that next minor release out the door and things like that. And uh, it's important to you delegate those minutia, those details to people who are really can handle them. And you focus the team around some strategic initiatives. And in my team at Ethica, we have this year, we have 20 strategic initiatives that crosses, um, I guess, six different teams. And these, uh, so each team has kind of three. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this isn't the only thing they work on, by no means. There, there's tons and tons of small stuff, but I don't tend to ask them about the small stuff. Right. I consistently ask them about the strategic initiatives. So we have a dashboard that reports on them. Uh, every time I talk to them, every one-on-one, -on -one, every time I meet them in the hall, uh, every time we have a staff meeting, I'm always asking about the strategic initiative. How's that one's doing? What's the next step? What's blocking us? Things like that to make sure we push those because the day-to-day -day activities don't need pushing. They have a momentum of their own. They're mm -hmm. like a freight train. They barrel along. Uh, the strategic initiatives are the things that you need to push. Uh, and so that's... That's kind of been my approach. And Steve sort of taught me that approach, how to elevate myself up a level. Steve, Steve left the company um, after about a year and a half, and he recommended that I just take his job to Ron. And so he, so I went back up reporting to, to Ron and then continued growing that company and, and hiring and hiring. And, but that, that lesson I learned from Steve was, has stayed with me all the time. I need, to, I need to delegate stuff away and then I need to raise my level up so that I can be thinking much more strategically. I'm really curious just to maybe dig deeper in terms of, I mean, you've been a year now in your current role. So are there specific steps that 
you take now when you come into these executive roles and how you roll it out because you you may be taking someone else's place something's been going on these you got to introduce yourself to the team so do you do you have some, a type of process when you come into in, into an existing company now yeah yeah I, i've done it a, a bunch of times now uh, and so the first thing you do is do nothing basically you observe you learn you observe you look at how things are going it was running before you got there it's going to keep running uh and so you just you just, you know, they, they're going to set you up with a certain reporting structure when you're in the door, whatever. I don't mind what it is, whatever it is. It's great. I've got these reports. I don't. And then I, I, so I learn, I observe, and that's the first phase. And that takes a couple of months generally. Uh, but then it's time to make a change because you were brought in for some reason. You were brought in as a change agent. You needed to make a change. So it's time to make a change. And in order to improve things. And usually what I focus on is, is, who are the people I have available? What are the areas of responsibility that need ownership of? And how do I arrange those areas of responsibilities and those people and set that up within my reporting structure uh, so that I can confidently delegate big areas of responsibility to people so I can now not get in the weeds all the time, but I can take that, that, mm -hmm. that step up. So that's, I, I, do, I do martial arts. Um, and uh, one of the uh, one of the great martial artists of all time was a, a Musashi Miyamoto Musashi. He was a swordsman in seventeenth uh, century Japan, and he uh, he went around having duels with people, and he won every one of them, hundreds and hundreds of duels with live blades. He won all of them, and eventually he threw away his live blade and he started using a wooden sword. And he still kept beating people, and they used live blades, anyways. Uh, and he retired, and uh, he took up other interests, and he had developed such such expertise in this one area that that he said to you know to really know one thing is to know all things. And he demonstrated that by becoming a very accomplished poet and a very accomplished uh, a sculptor and a very accomplished uh, general and a very accomplished builder and things like that. So he wrote a book called, called The Book of Five Rings. And one of the chapters there was about uh, advice to a general when they're building an army. And he said, it's, the analogy is to a carpenter building a house. So if you're a carpenter building a house, you have a bunch of wood lying around. And this was the old days, so you didn't go buy two by fours. You had trees and things like that, lying, and smaller trees and bigger trees and trees of this type and trees of that type and gnarly trees and straight trees and things like that. And he said, what was important in building a house is you got to figure out, you know, what tree was what. You had to understand the properties of the trees. And then, so say you have a piece of wood that is really uh, naughty and, and quite ugly, but really strong. Well, you use that for the center post of your house and then you clad it with this other wood that's much prettier has a beautiful grain on it but is quite weak so it's all about figuring out you know what what pieces of wood you have at your disposal and assembling them into a house you you don't have an idea for the d exact design of the house you're you're willing to modify what the house design looks like to accommodate the wood that you have and use the wood in all the right places and he said that's how a general should pick their their lieutenants is in the same sort of way. So I've always uh, taken that. I've never looked at, I need the org chart to look like X and then we're just going to jam people or 
not or go and wait six months to hire the right person into the right role. It's more like designing the organization, the responsibility division, taking into account the needs of the company and the and the people's abilities within that company, and then uh, and then going from there. Dave, you describe yourself as a entrepreneur's helper. I'd love to. Right. Yeah, I'd love you for you to share more. Uh, Tell, tell us what, how that helps you and how that defines you uh, within a business leadership scope. Yeah. So uh, I recognized early on that I'm not an entrepreneur myself. And I think a lot of heavily technical people aren't. Uh, and I think it's about your risk profile. As a technologist who's been around the block, you know, you've seen so many things slip, you know, so many high expectations and so many things slip. And you're very pragmatic about these things. If you take that same mindset to being an entrepreneur, you'd never even start your business because every business seems, you know, the entrepreneur needs to convince themselves that it's going to be a success when everyone looks at it and, you know, probably they tell you, oh yeah, that's a great idea, but they're thinking to themselves, it'll never work. He'll, he'll fail. He'll die. And most entrepreneurs, you know, start up a number of companies before the one that, that, that succeeds, but they have to have this passionate uh, almost kind of this belief, it's this faith in the idea. And they'll manage to convince themselves that their business case works and things like that. Uh, but in fact, what they're doing is they create a, a business case that that's I think is mostly bogus. And then they get into the market and then they start learning things and they start shifting and moving and pivoting. And they, like the founders at Ethica had a business idea and it didn't work out. So they shifted to another one and it didn't work out. And they shifted to this one that really worked out. Uh, so this is kind of the, their third business idea, almost going bankrupt along the way. Uh, and so this, this, this current idea, which really took off in 2010, uh, is really, I would kind of date that to be the founding of the company, if you will, because it was the, the current, the company with its current concept really started then taking off after that. So, so a person like that is actually not well suited to run a technology organization. Because the technologists are, you know, they're like scientists and engineers. They like things that are pretty certain if going on. And so there needs to be someone to bridge that gap between the entrepreneur's crazy ideas and uh, and the the engineering more kind of stout, stayed, well, that's going to take a year to even do that. And then you, you have to get in the middle of that and say, uh, and, and and translate the language and translate the risk preferences back and forth and translate, well, yeah, the, he's painting this huge picture, but why don't we start small? And nowadays, it's, that terminology is more formalized with uh, agile marketing or uh, the kind of minimum viable product that you're getting out. And but and that's that's what we need to kind of act as the translator. And so that's what I mean by the entrepreneur's helper. I started that out very early on with Ron Dembo was the, the ultimate entrepreneur at, at Algorithmics and I kind of continue that uh, to, to this day, trying to realize their vision in, in something that, that can be done. It's not my job to question that vision. My job is to take the vision and, and, and make it real to the extent I, I possibly can. Um, Dave, what else? I mean, I'd love to, you know, for you to share some some things that you're more excited about that maybe it's outside of Ethica or maybe you got some side projects, any initiatives or any fun things that you're looking forward to at this point. Yeah, well, I I love my work. I love my job. Um, so most of the fun things I do concentrate around Ethica, I would say. Uh, so 
for instance, we're, we're building out our office. We've expanded greatly. So we're doing an office expansion and we get to design that, what that new space looks like. So that's kind of a fun project yeah. that, I, that I'm not uh, used to doing, working with designers and getting that space just right. Uh, this new architecture, I'm absolutely fascinated by the, the old kind the old, and it still exists all over the place. The old architecture for web applications is it's centered on a big clunky database at the middle. There's a, like a, a D an IBM DB2 database, relational database that sits at the center of everything. And then there's various kind of app servers that implement business logic that you can have multiple of them, but they all coordinate their action at the database. And then you can have a web tier that serves up your, your, your web pages and your Ajax uh, JavaScript code out to the browsers. And that's how kind of things are structured for the most part. But that there's that giant bottleneck at that, at that SQL database and just breaking that completely apart. And instead of focusing on the database, which is the traditional way it's done, you model your domain in terms of database objects, really. And, and then you design your database and it's now the center of the world. Everything goes on around that. Kind of invert that. The, the exciting thing are all of the transactions that are flowing in. Uh, in the traditional scheme, they go and they modify the database. But in this new scheme, it's the messages that are the most important thing. It's called a Kappa architecture where you have a source of you, all the messages stream in and you store them at the source. It's the, it's the source of all messages. And then you play those messages through this technology called Kafka that streams them from microservice to microservice to microservice, each one of which massages things a little bit. You can have branches in those messages and you can do auxiliary offline tasks. And what's important is, and at any time you can replay the entire message stream to reestablish the state you're in. The database then becomes what's called the serving layer. It's unimportant. You could destroy your database and then your code will just recreate it by replaying all those messages again. So the databases act to serve the needs of, say, a web application that wants to display something. So you might pool your data into a Cassandra database and then you can very quickly show, uh, do a query on that and show certain transactions. Or if you want to be a bit more dynamic about your search, you can take that exact same data and pool it into an elastic search kind of thing. And then you can do crazy, wild, um, kind of Google-like queries against Elasticsearch, for instance. Or there, there may be uh, an element that should needs to go into a relational database because you're going to do some data warehousing on it. So you can move the data there. All these different serving layers, none of which are really important because you blow any of them away and it would just recreate it completely. And this completely blows up the amount of speed you can get, the amount of concurrency, the amount of parallelism that you can achieve just goes up dramatically as a result of, of moving to an architecture like that. So we've seen in what we've done so far, uh, almost like 2000 fold increases in transaction processing times using these new technologies, as opposed to the, the older kinds of technologies. And so it's, it's really, really exciting. That stuff, you just blew my mind. I mean, I probably went really technical, but for me, I could talk about this. I, I have a computer engineering background. I work 
closely with uh, you know with some of my tech teams. I really understand. I haven't wrote, written a code since I left school, but I mean, this I could talk with you, Dave, forever yeah. about this stuff, and you, you just blew my mind in terms of architecture and all that type of stuff. But we need to end. But before we do so, I'd love to get some of your final thoughts, observations, and, and really some actionable recommendations that you could share to to anyone who is listening, who's looking to become either a business leader or a technology leader, uh, who is listening today. Yeah, so I, I think it's really important. I, this what I talked about earlier about this balance between capacity and requirement that that applies almost everywhere, and a lot of things go really badly if you don't understand what you're asking the team to do within what time frame and and what resource you have available, and it's generally projects you're talking about on top of a steady state load already, and often business leaders will just force things on people. And then stuff won't get done well. Stuff will fail. People will get pissed off uh, and demoralize, things like that. So I think it's really important for business leaders anywhere to really understand the capacity of their organization quantitatively, if at all possible, to really understand the requirement, what they're asking them to do with estimates of that and marry those two things and make sure that kind of we have a plan that more or less, yeah, we can see a way to getting that done. and then. We're in a position that when situation changes, when we get a new customer who comes, who we need to do something for them quickly, we're right there. We have everything we know to to say, well, let's do that and we'll sacrifice this instead and just make those decisions very quickly. Because as many people as you have, you're, you're always in a resource constrained situation. Uh, and so you all, no matter how much money you have to grow the team, uh, you're, you always are sh- shy of people to do everything that you can dream of doing. And so uh, whatever level of company you're in, it's always like absolutely critical to get a, a, a balance on those two things. So that's kind of very simple, very straightforward approach has really served, served me well throughout my career is just, uh, to, to make sure we don't take on too much. And then once we know what our capacity requirement, then we can push a little bit. You know, after that, we can push. We know, we know what the stretch goal is at that point, and we can push for the stretch goal. So, no, that's great. Thank you for sharing, Dave. So to close, please tell us where we can find more information about you, Ethica, and maybe other projects or any MMA fights that you might be in. Uh, no, no fighting. I'm just training MMA. That's uh, <laughs> I got my coach. My coach is a fighter, so that's fun. Uh, no, I beat myself up regularly every every week, several times. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, no, Ethica, come to Ethica, www.ethica.com. Uh, we, we're constantly hiring. It's a very growing company and we're always looking for talent, of course. Uh, and you'll see uh, me and my colleagues and our bios there and what we're doing. Uh, I don't have much of a social media profile outside of that anyways, but uh, happy to, uh, you know, if you want to email me, uh, dave.penny at ethica.com is the place to reach me and I'll be happy to, uh, to talk. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us on the Business Leadership Podcast, Dave. My pleasure, Edwin. Thank you very much. That's it, folks. Thank you for listening to Episode 35 of the Business Leadership Podcast with David Penny. I really enjoyed sitting down with Dave in a soundproof theater room, learning about new database technologies, fintech, and Miyamoto Musashi. To learn more about Dave, Ethica, or anything else he mentioned, please visit the episode webpage at thebusinessleadership.com slash 035. Thank you for all the messages. I appreciate all the comments, questions, and suggestions. Keep them coming. Feel free to contact me directly via email to 
edwin at thebusinessleadership.com. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And lastly, if you are enjoying the content, please rate and leave me a comment on iTunes. Thank you again. And until next time, Edwin signing off. Thank you for listening to the Business Leadership Podcast at thebusinessleadership.com.